everyone, thank you for tuning into this latest Science Custom podcast created in partnership with Bold, the digital platform on learning and development. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'm very pleased that you're able to join me for this series of podcast interviews with outstanding researchers who are attempting to make positive changes in the lives of children and adolescents by seeking practical solutions for a complex world. Apart from this common goal, they are also all recipients of the prestigious Klaus J. Jacobs Research Prize, a 1 million Swiss francs grant awarded by the Jacobs Foundation that recognizes exceptional achievements in the field of child and youth development. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking to Dr. Chuck Nelson, one of the two 2021 Research Prize recipients. Chuck is Professor of Pediatrics and Neuroscience and of Psychology at Harvard Medical School as well as Professor of Education in the Harvard Graduate School of Education. His work is primarily in the field of developmental cognitive neuroscience and includes research into the development of social perception, the developmental trajectories to autism, and the effects of early adversity on brain and behavioral development. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chuck. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So Chuck, in the short time that we have, we're not able to cover all of the work that you do. So I'd like to focus on your research on childhood adversity. So maybe you could briefly tell our audience how you became interested in this work. Sure. I have a longstanding interest in how experience impacts the course of development. And I think that over time, I narrowed down that interest to focus really on the effects of adverse experiences. I think that Many of us who study experience-dependent brain development tend to focus, unfortunately, on bad things that happen to children or things that should happen that don't happen. So the good things that should facilitate healthy development fail to happen. And an example of that, of course, would be children who are neglected early in life. Chuck, some of the best known early work that you did was in the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, which took place in Romania and began almost two decades ago now. Can you summarize that project for us? Sure. Very, you know, very briefly, Romania had a particularly egregious history in taking abandoned children and placing them in state-run institutions. And by the time we started our study in roughly the year 2000, there were more than 100,000 kids living in state-run institutions. And we decided, rather than simply ask a question that many had asked before, which is, what are the effects of being raised in such profound deprivation on development? We thought, why not do a study where we can actually compare children placed in better environments? So this was a randomized controlled trial of high quality foster care as an alternative to institutional care. So it's important to emphasize at the beginning that we could do random assignment simply because there wasn't enough intervention, foster care in this case, to go around. So. The brief version is that we began with a large number of children who had been abandoned to institutions and a sample of children who were living with families who had never been in an institution. We did an extensive baseline assessment, and then the randomization occurred so that half of the children in the institution were placed in high-quality foster care and half remained in the institutional care. We've been following these children for over 20 years. As we anticipated from the very beginning, the vast majority of the kids who started life in an institution left the institution. But as we analyzed our data over the past 20 years, we typically use what's called intent to treat, which means that we analyze the data based on the group to which the child had been assigned 
not where they were actually living, which means our findings are very conservative. So keep in mind that when I compare children in foster care to children in institutional care, the reality is that many of the children assigned to remain in the institution actually left the institution. So the effects I'll describe really reflect the effects of where they spent their first few years of life. So what we had basically found is the following. Collectively, the children who were randomly assigned to remain in institutional care, even if they left the institution by the time they were, say, three or four or five years of age, they have shown impairments and deficits and delays in virtually every domain we looked at. In contrast, the children that we placed in foster care showed higher IQs, improvements in a variety of domains, particularly their mental health improved. However, the most important finding was the children we placed in foster care did best if they were placed before they were roughly two years of age. The children who spent more than two years in an institution and then were placed into foster care showed gains, but not nearly to the extent that the children placed under the age of two. And we think of this as a critical period. So children who were older than two years of age when they went to foster care did not experience the gains that children who were placed before they were two years of age. So clearly this first two years, the zero to two is a, is a critical period in their development when they seem most susceptible to adverse experiences. Are there any other critical periods in a, a child's lifetime? So it's a wonderful question. I think that historically in neuroscience, we've thought of critical periods as really something that occurs very early in life. It's not that there is a single critical period. We know that the critical period for language acquisition is a little bit different than it might be for uh, forming an attachment relationship and things like that. But most critical periods typically occur in those first two years. Now, that said, we know that as children make the transition to adolescence, this pubertal transition, that there's a great remodeling and reorganization in the brain. Some have argued that this represents a second critical period. In adolescence, it's not so much another critical period as much as a period of elasticity when the brain is once again open to new experience. And an example of that is we have recently reported that in adolescence, children who have been placed in very favorable, that is very good foster care, did show some improvements in some of the in some domains. Now they continue to experience deficits and delays in other domains, given that they spent the bulk of their life in a poor environment. But it did demonstrate that high quality caregiving in adolescence can lead to some beneficial gains in behavioral function. Now we all face some sort of adversity at some time in our lives. So what do you think it is that allows some people or children to cope with this type of adversity better than others? So there's been a long-standing interest in this concept of resilience and protective factors. Why, why do some children thrive in the face of adversity and the others not? In our study, what we've observed is that there are, in fact, some children who were placed in an orphanage early in life and remain there, who uh, have IQs that are close to the normal range. But it turns out that this issue of resilience is not across the board, that the child may show some evidence of what we call sparing, meaning 
Maybe they did not suffer in a particular domain, but they may they still suffered in other domains. So I think we need to move away from thinking of children as resilient across the board as much as thinking that there are some domains that seem to benefit more from good environments or are protected against bad environments, but it may not be across the board. Uh, it would be probably the rare child who got off, as we say, scot-free and didn't suffer any ill effects from being raised in an institutional setting. What might parents or caregivers be able to do to build resilience both in their own children and in children that they might be fostering or have adopted? This question is particularly poignant right now because of the coronavirus. So a group of us, led by Susan Hillis at the CDC, have now, over the course of three publications, reported that more than five and a half million children have been orphaned by the pandemic. And it begs the question of what's in the best interest of these children? What should we do? So imagine you have a child who's now lost his or her caregivers and is now placed in foster care or adopted by a relative. What can we do to facilitate healthy development? I think there are a few things. We need to be there for these children. And this this goes for any child experiencing adversity. They need to have, think of it as a safe haven. This would include responsive and stable caregiving. If the child is experiencing mental health problems, they need to have access to resources that will help them get through these mental health problems. If the children are experiencing disturbances in attachment or relationships with either peers or with caregivers, again, they need to seek uh, mental health professionals who are skilled at helping children navigate these interpersonal relationships as they get to be older into adolescence, intimate relationships. Then, of course, there are the cognitive domains that might have suffered. And here, I think things like special education or special services, uh, individualized educational programs that would identify children's deficits and either develop a strength-based model, which means think of their strengths and build to those strengths, or identify the areas that they're, they're struggling with and do interventions that help them, for example, help them learn to read better or help them with their arithmetical skills and things like that. So I wanted to shift gears a little and go back to the early adversity that you were talking about, the adversity within the first two years. Has there been any work on the possibility of reversing or repairing these deleterious effects that happened so early in life? I wish I could be more optimistic and positive in answering this question, but there is a parallel study to ours called the English Romanian Adoptees Study. They looked at Romanian orphans adopted into homes in the United Kingdom and their cohort of kids are now in their mid-20s. So they're, they started you know, four or five years before us. Now, this is not a randomized controlled trial. This is studying children who have been adopted out of institutions and comparing them to their, to their biological siblings. They have reported quite consistently, consistent with our own reports, that decades later, most of the domains that children suffered from early in life, problems in attachment, problems with regulating their attention, mental health problems, sadly, are still present two decades later. So it's been challenging to reverse these deleterious effects. But that said, that does not mean the children haven't shown an improvement in functioning. And this is particularly true for children who have access to resources. 
the worry I had are the children who remain or born into adversity and remain in adversity. So it's not as though we can reverse these early negative effects as much as mitigate them. And I think that's important to emphasize that we can mitigate some of these early effects, even if we can't erase them. So Chuck, let me ask you about some of the current work that you're doing, which involves, in my understanding, more subtle stresses. So not kids in an orphanage in their early years, but some of the more subtle economic stresses that a child might experience. So perhaps you could share some of your current work that you're doing. Sure. One example of this is our what we call our Healthy Baby Project. So these are children in Boston, and these tend to be children growing up in poor homes with high levels of stress and adversity. It could be anything from a single mom who's trying to raise children while working two jobs. It could be children who are homeless. It can be any number of things. So the kind of adversity these children face is not nearly as extreme as what we've seen in Romania. Nevertheless, starting even prenatally, these children are experiencing any number of stressors. I should actually say what they're experiencing is a household experiencing a lot of stress, usually the moms. And what we have found is early as two months of age, if we record the brain's electrical activity, for example, which we can use as an index of brain development, we find that the greater the levels of stress the mother's experiencing, the greater the reduction in the baby's brain's electrical activity. And so that means even as early as two months of age, high levels of maternal stress are having a negative impact on the baby's brain activity. Now, I want to quickly point out which goes back to an earlier question about protective factors. My comment about this inverse relationship, higher levels of maternal stress, lower levels of brain activity applies to the group as a whole. But it turned out that the more education the mothers had, the less of an effect we saw in the baby. So it seems that high levels of maternal education, in this case, it might be completing high school, taking some community college classes, things like that, turns out to be a protective factor. And that's important if we're developing interventions. So now we know that high levels of stress exposure early in life can have negative impacts on the course of development. We see this in language development, cognitive development as well. But it may be that an intervention could be getting moms more education. Chuck, how do you see your work being applied to have a measurable impact in the lives of children? It's a wonderful question. So let's, for example, take my earlier comment that there are more than five and a half million children orphaned by the coronavirus and 160,000 in the United States. That means that these children need a home. The lessons we've learned from Romania, the lessons we know from the literature on adversity tells us, in fact, it's almost like a prescription pad for what we need to do. We need to provide safe, nurturing, responsive caregiving environments. We need to provide the mental health services that children require, the programs that would help children do better in school and have greater academic success. So I think one storyline from our work is to demonstrate a few things. One, that early adversity can have a negative impact, not just on child development, but on lifespan development. And with that in mind, that tells us that a preventative strategy is to reduce the adversity children around the world are exposed to. One of the things we've learned has to do with critical periods and that what happens in those first few years of life 
contributes greatly to the kind of psychological foundation upon which subsequent development occurs. And as a result, that tells us that we need to identify children exposed to adversity as early in life as possible so we can take steps to reduce the burden of adversity on those children. And I think a final lesson is that even though the work on critical periods sounds slightly frightening because it implies that what happens early is very deterministic, we know from studies conducted by others as well as ourselves that we should not give up hope, that there remains plasticity in the brain for many, many years. So even though we've learned that what happens in those first few years has a profound impact on the course of development, that does not mean that there isn't a reserve of plasticity later in life that we can't help these children. And so even children who spent the first three or four years of life in a terrible environment like an orphanage in Russia or Romania or something like that, but then is adopted into a wonderful home, those children can still make remarkable gains in their functioning. And I think what we need to emphasize to families adopting those children, or in the case of the pandemic, fostering those children, is don't give up on them, provide a strong family environment, provide the resources they need, and then just expect that children will come back. They may not come back completely, but they'll make a lot of gains and be able to lead successful and happy lives. Great. Thanks so much, Chuck. Many thanks for taking the time uh, to share your work with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Sean. And thank you to our podcast audience for joining us. If you'd like to send us your feedback or suggestions, please send an email to custompodcast at aaas.org. For more podcasts in this series, please visit the Bold website by going to bold, that's B-O-L-D dot expert. Again, thank you to Dr. Chuck Nelson and to the Jacobs Foundation for making this series possible. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening.